we start with a China, and China has now retaliated against Canada after Ottawa imposed sanctions on China over China's treatment of its Uyghur Muslim population. China has now imposed sanctions against entities and individuals in Canada, including Conservative MP Michael Chong. He is the official opposition critic for foreign affairs in the House of Commons, and he joins me now. Mr. Chong, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, this is a surprising turn of events. How, how were you informed that you had personally been sanctioned by the Chinese government? How was that relayed to you? I got a text uh, from someone who said to me that I had been sanctioned with a link to the official statement from the uh, People's Republic of China in Beijing. And so I read the statement and saw that I was one of the elected officials uh, here and abroad that had been sanctioned. What does that exactly mean? Like, what does this sanction entail? Essentially, it means two things. It prohibits uh, those officials who have been sanctioned or prohibited from traveling to China. Uh, And secondly, it prohibits uh, Chinese citizens and companies from doing business with these officials. So in practical terms, it has little impact on me. As you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and I had no plans to travel abroad for the foreseeable future. Uh, secondly, as an elected official, as an elected member of parliament, I don't do business with China. Um, so in practical terms, it's not going to have any impact on my work or my ability to continue to speak up. Okay, what is your reaction to this when you heard this? Did it surprise you? Uh, I was I was surprised on a Saturday morning to wake up to this news, but yeah. uh, my reaction was that uh, our efforts to draw attention to China's gross violations of human rights, its genocide against the Uyghur Muslim minority, and its violations of international law are working. They're effective. Uh, China is very worried about the work that we are doing to draw attention to these violations of law, and yeah. that's the reason why they're trying to sanction us, to silence us. But frankly, it's, yeah. it's not going to work. It's, it's going to do quite the opposite. All they're doing is helping draw further attention to these violations of international human rights and these violations that are taking place in Hong Kong. All right, speaking to Conservative MP Michael Chong, he has just been sanctioned by the government of China for his criticism of China. Uh, Michael, I know you're, a, you're of Chinese descent yourself. Like, your father's from Hong Kong, right? That's right. My yeah. father was born and raised in Hong Kong. He immigrated, actually immigrated to Vancouver in 1952, uh, many, many years ago. He's no longer alive, but uh, so I'm of Chinese descent. My mother actually immigrated from the Netherlands, from Europe. So she was of Dutch extraction, and they met here and got married. And uh, I'm, yeah. uh, I'm the product of that marriage, so to speak. Right. Do you have any family in Hong Kong now? I, I don't have any immediate family there. I do have uh, cousins and, and other uh, relatives there. Um, wow. Are you concerned for them at all? Yes, I am. Uh, I haven't been in touch with them recently out of uh, concern um, of linking them to, to me. But, uh, yeah, it's always a concern. Look, my, my father fled uh, communist China in the late 1940s while he was re- born and raised in Hong Kong. After the war ended in 1945, he went to university in southern China for the first couple of years while it was still under the control of the nationalists. And as the communists moved south, he fled back into Hong Kong and he never returned. 
And uh, even when China reopened in the 1980s, he was reluctant uh, to go back. He never did because of fear of being detained. Right. Do these sanctions, do they apply strictly to yourself or, or does it also include any members of your family? Uh, as I understand it, it applies to me uh, yeah. directly and, and to obviously uh, to my immediate family. But, you know, in recent, in light of uh, my wife and I decided a while ago, um, about a year and a half ago, that we weren't going to go to Hong Kong or to China um, no. because of the turn of events that started to take place there a year and a half ago with the, you know, with the imposition of a draconian new national security law and the other crackdowns that were taking place in Hong Kong. Yeah. So this, These sanctions are not going to have any effect on me. Um, And in Mm. fact, they're just going to further further embolden my resolve to continue to speak up on these issues, knowing that it is effective and it is having an impact. Speaking of Conservative MP Michael Chong, just sanctioned by the government of China. So you're saying that you're not going to be silenced by this. Does this does this impact your work as the official opposition critic in in any way? yeah, it impacts my work in the sense that it's helping draw attention to what is going on. You know, we've been uh, calling on uh, democracies to recognize that a genocide is taking place in Western China. There are some 12 million Uyghurs, a Muslim minority, that live in Xinjiang province in Western China. And China, for the last five, six years, has been persecuting them. They have been forcing millions of Uyghur Muslims into detention camps. They have been conducting mass sterilizations in the form of women being forced to undergo abortions, women being forced to take IUDs, women being forced uh, through other, uh, into other birth control measures. And as a result, uh, births in that region of China among the Uyghur Muslim minority have plummeted by more than 50% in the three years after the campaign began. Uh, there's evidence that uh, Uyghur Muslims are being used to uh, coercively and forcibly pick cotton and produce tomatoes, uh, in many cases under slave-like conditions. Uh, much of the tomatoes and cotton from that region of China is exported. And so we're drawing attention to that fact and calling on the government to ban the import of tomatoes and cotton from China. So the, the impact of the sanctions is proving that China is very worried about the increasing calls for action and 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 clumsily attempting to shut the debate down. The fact is we live in a free country, a free and democratic country, where we are going to continue to speak up on these issues and continue to rally uh, people here and abroad for action. Do you find it strange that China has sanctioned a member of the opposition? You are not a part of the government. You're an official opposition critic. I mean, why would they go after an opposition MP, do you think? Well, I, I take it. Uh, I I think the reason is twofold. I think it demonstrates that we, as an opposition, are being effective in holding yeah. the government accountable on its policy on China, um, and that the Chinese authorities are worried about uh, how effective we are and are clumsily trying to silence us. Right. I think the second reason why they sanctioned me uh, is because they are giving a pass to the Liberal cabinet because the Liberal cabinet abstained from the Uyghur genocide vote. They abstained in recognizing the Uyghur genocide. If you look at who the Chinese authorities sanctioned in the United States, it was members of the Biden administration, members of the American government they sanctioned, because the Biden administration has taken the formal step to recognize the Uyghur genocide. 
Okay, I've actually got some audio here of a foreign foreign affairs minister, Mark Garneau, and on that vote that was in the House of Commons on uh, whether to recognize genocide uh, happening in China. And as you mentioned, the government, the Trudeau cabinet abstaining on that vote. And here is Mark Garneau announcing that in the House of Commons. Mr. Speaker, I abstained on behalf of the government of Canada. Mr. Garneau, abstention, abstention. Mr. Hardy. What was that about? Okay, you can hear some of the shouts of shame after the government abstained on, on that vote. Do you think that it's so you think it's significant that China, in, instead of sanctioning the, the government of Canada, they're sanctioning the opposition? Yeah, I think it's significant. I think it's because they're 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 essentially saying that uh, the Liberal cabinet acted as good boys and girls and not voting to recognize the Uyghur genocide. But I, I strongly disagree. I think it's an abdication of leadership on part of the Liberal government uh, when it comes to these fundamental principles on which democracies are based principles such as a belief in human rights and human dignity we cannot be silent we have to take a position and governments are are empowered to take these difficult decisions so when it comes to these fundamental questions i strongly believe that governments need to make these decisions and need to stand up for these fundamental principles if we don't if we if governments don't stand up for these fundamental principles we've essentially allowed the forces of authoritarianism to win. Michael Chong, thank you for coming on the show today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. You heard my conversation there with Conservative MP Michael Chong. He's the official opposition foreign affairs critic in the House of Commons, just officially sanctioned now by the government of China. That means he's not allowed to travel with China, do business with China, applies to his immediate family as well. He's worried about some family members he has in Hong Kong. Let's discuss further now with my guest, Professor Margaret McQuaig-Johnston from the University of Ottawa, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Thank you very much for coming on. Good to be with you, Mike. I know you were, I heard my interview with Mr. Chong. Anything jump out at you there? Well, uh, he's really shown tremendous leadership and courage, and in fact, it's, uh, it's as if China gave him a big gold star for performance, yeah. because he's uh, been able to personally... Um, uh, attract a tremendous amount of attention to the plight of the Uyghurs. And I I guess the other thing is that uh, they may not realize it, but if the Conservatives came to power in Canada in the coming years, it's it's not very astute of Beijing to have banned the person who's likely to be Canada's foreign minister. Yeah, right. So... But, no, he's, he's really done a remarkable job. He and others in Parliament have really uh, attracted a lot of attention to the problems that the Uyghurs have had for quite a number of years now. Right. These sanctions announced by China, they were applied to this Conservative MP, also to House of Commons, uh, House of Commons Subcommittee on, uh, on International Relations. Do you find that unusual? It came after Canada had imposed sanctions on, on some Chinese officials, uh, so it seems to be like retaliation, but do you find it kind of weird they would go after an opposition MP? Uh, it is a little unusual. Uh, you'd think they would go after the government MPs. As oh, yeah. Mr. Chong pointed out, uh, the cabinet sat out that vote in Parliament, but every other member of Parliament voted in favour of the motion. And th- that's really significant. And I think, you know, the Liberal MPs would have checked with 
the Prime Minister's office, can we really vote in favour of this, and, and would have gotten the go-ahead. So while officially the government didn't endorse it, um, if you look at the statements that they've made about the concerns that they do have about the Uyghurs, the descriptions they give in terms of forced sterilization, forced labour, torture, and so on, um, those all are characteristics of genocide. So they really do believe this is a genocide. They just haven't voted that way. Okay, uh, Mr. Chong calls this almost like a badge of honor that he has been sanctioned by the Chinese government and singled out like this. Do you think this in any way is a, a political blunder or mistake by, by the Chinese regime? Well, uh, yes, I do. Um, but they're doing it across the board. And, and uh, you know, they're pressuring critics in the EU, the UK, um, the US and, and Canada, trying to silence them. Um, but in, instead, it's just proving to the world that, it, that China's a bully and can't be trusted. And Beijing thinks its, it's uh, economic importance will uh, sub- submit other nations um, into going along with whatever they, they want. Right. Um, and I think, honestly, that the Beijing regime doesn't relate at all to countries and citizens who have values and ethics and speak up for them. Um, you know, I think they, they, their focus is keeping the party in power and, uh, and stability in uh, their society uh, so that the party isn't questioned. So this question of human rights and values and ethics is something that they just don't seem to relate to. We just have 30 seconds here. We heard the uh, the Conservative MP Michael Chong there call for economic sanctions by Canada on some Chinese exports, notably tomatoes and cotton produced in the, the, the region of China where the Uyghurs are. Um, do you think that Canada should do that, and does it risk further uh, a trade war with China if they did? You've got 30 seconds here. Uh, the, the U.S. has done that, mm. and, um, and so, yeah, I think we should do that as well. Uh, the government's alluded to the fact that um, businesses should not be bringing these kinds of products uh, into Canada, but it's, that's leaving it to the businesses, and it's really for the governments to determine that something uh, shouldn't come in. Thank you for coming on today. Good to talk to you, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about Saturday's horrific knife attack outside the Lynn Valley Library in North Vancouver now. One person killed, six others injured, one man in custody facing a second-degree murder charge. We're expecting more information from police later today on this shocking attack. Let's talk to my guest now, Susie Chant. She is the NDP MLA for North Vancouver Seymour and she arrived at the scene of that attack shortly after it ha- had happened. And I'm very welcomed, I'm very pleased to welcome her. Susie, thank you for coming on. Thanks very much. I appreciate this opportunity to, to speak with you. You bet. Thank you. Uh, first of all, I want to express my support to you and everyone in your community there in North Vancouver. We're all thinking of the victims of this senseless attack here. Let me ask you about what you experienced and witnessed on Saturday, because you arrived, you arrived on that scene shortly after it happened correct? That's correct. We were actually picking up dog food in the plaza and had parked across the way uh, and walked it. We, we knew something was going on because there was sirens and we had spoken to a person who said that there was something going on. I, I went in because as a nurse and a first aider, I thought perhaps there'd be a use for another set of hands. Um, as I went into the plaza, I could see uh, groups of people 
uh, some with um, first responders, some groups of first responders gathered around and, and stabilizing uh, injured uh, victims and other groups of uh, people, bystanders trying to, I think, support each other is my interpretation of what I saw. Um, and, you know, there was uh, a couple of kids in the square. Uh, this is in an enclosed plaza. Um, and as I went through, I could see that there was more activity happening in the lobby area that's between the library and the community room where the library was having a book sale. Uh, and uh, there was more going on in there. I, I again checked in with the, the uh, constable on the front door who advised me that we did have sufficient ambulances in place. What they had actually brought in 11 ambulances, which is uh, amazing because, you know, sometimes when there's a multiple casualty, it's difficult to get uh, as many ambulances as you need. So it was the first responders were incredible. What struck me was how calm the situation was, given what uh, apparently was had and was going on, because on the far side, I understood from later on, on the far side on the road, they were still working with um, um, uh, uh, containing and subduing the, the suspects. And so there was still things going on on the other side. However, I, at the time, I was not aware of those. Right. Did you see... Um, what about the people who were the people who were injured in in this attack? Did you see Did you see anyone who was injured? What kind of condition were they in? I did see a couple of people who were injured uh, yeah. as the uh, as the um, ambulance folks were working with them. Yes. Yeah. What was their condition? I'm not going to I'm not going to talk about that. That's yeah. not mine to speak about. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned that you were a you were a nurse. Uh, were you able to yes. Were you able to help anyone there on the scene? Um, what I focused on was uh, a bystander that, that looked to me to be particularly shocky. Um, and I spent time with her to make sure that she did not uh, get worse and to try and help her debrief a little bit. Uh, so that's, that's where I focused my attention because clearly the, you know, clearly the first responders were in, were in good control of the situation and had everybody pretty much uh, sorted and, and were working on things. Uh, and I just noted that this individual was looking not well and spent time with her. Wow, um, that's great you could do that. Speaking to North Vancouver MLA Susie Chant, she was on the scene shortly after the knife attack on Saturday. Could you talk a little bit, Susie, about the, this community? I mean, Lynn Valley is just such a beautiful area, so peaceful. For something like this to happen, I mean, this is just yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, this is this is very shocking for our community. Um, it's certainly outside of the norm and and very unexpected. Um, however, you know we we also have the capacity to uh, recognize that this is something that we need to be wary a little bit, and we need to know that things happen. However, we also need to be allow ourselves to continue to feel safe. Uh, in our in our everyday business, and not let the behavior of somebody who clearly was not in control of their behavior to dictate how we run our lives. We can't let ourselves be fearful all the time. Yeah, this, However, this um... that's very easy to say and not easy to do. Uh, and I think the community is working very very hard together. I mean, I don't know if you've seen pictures of the of the flowers that have yes. accumulated in the library square, which is just spectacular. There were people just. We were by there several times yesterday, and, uh, you know, there was literally a socially distanced um, parade of people going through and dropping off flowers and, and speaking quietly with each other. And, and that is 
that is a huge part of the healing and support, you know, to see the community come together like that and, and, and take care of each other. You mentioned the... You mentioned the mm-hmm. rapid response of, of first responders to this, and I, I think a tip of the hat is in order, in order for them Absolutely. as well. And you mentioned Absolutely. that 11 ambulances so quickly on the scene, which is incredible, because you were right. How, how soon after the attacks do you think it was when you were on the scene there? Um, I'm thinking possibly as much as 10 minutes after the initial attack. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, as I say, you know, by that time, uh, the, the attacker was being dealt with. Uh, so, uh, and, and the victims were all, all being attended to by ambulance. I, I will also say, you know, the police were there getting the scene back under control. And also there was a, a tremendous turnout from our fire district as well. Uh, so the firemen were there, um, and they were helping in so many ways. So all, all of our first responders were there, and it was a very well-coordinated and, and functional scene right. for which, you know, our community is so is so thankful that we have that available to us. Had six people injured in this attack, and many more, I think, probably experiencing the, the emotional or the, the psychological trauma. aftermaths it's of trauma. this. Yeah, it's trauma. trauma, right. Yeah. Including yourself or, from what you saw. Would you recommend, like... You know, people who are troubled from from what they've seen, they should reach out. They should get help. Absolutely, I, I yeah. think people. Um, what I recommend from what I do myself is, um, I find a neutral person that I can just talk to until I stop talking, mm-hmm. um, and and just pour everything out, and hopefully they nod wisely periodically and maybe say something. This is what works for me. Um, but absolutely, you know, the, this sort of thing, you really need to take the opportunity to, to work it through your feelings and your fears um, and, and, you know, take them out and shine them and, and shake them out in the light of day uh, and give yourself the opportunity to move beyond it and, and also recognize what strategies you need to put in place to make yourself feel safe. Um, you know, we, sometimes we recognize that our vigilance is nothing. You know, we, we do our day-to-day stuff and we're not vigilant at all and recognizing that perhaps somebody is not doing as well as they could. Um, and so, you know, we, it's, it's really important. Now, there's multiple, multiple ways of reaching out to somebody, uh, whether it's uh, faith-related, uh, the padres, the, 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 uh, the clergy, whether uh, it's through calling uh, mental health op- options. There's a variety of, of call-in options for mental health. Uh, some of which are age-specific. You know, there's counselors at school, uh, because I know that there were kids involved, uh, and and there's a whole variety of options out there. Uh, If people are having difficulties finding their options, uh, there's a number of of lines on the the COVID information around mental health already, and those lines can be used for that. The, the, uh, the other thing that I'm aware of is both um, North Van District, uh, North Van City, uh, and uh, also the various service clubs have uh, options um, if, you know, if people want to seek uh, different right. things available. So there's a, there's a whole, I mean, again, within uh, yesterday, by, by yesterday afternoon, I had spoken with various representatives from various places. Uh, the other thing I need to be sure to tip my hat to is I did go down to emergency later on the later in the day on Saturday um, and managed to uh, go in and, and speak with one of the staff members there briefly. 
just to see how things were going there. And again, emergency was very calm. Um, you know, things were under control. Things were, you know, they were working with the clients, plus working with everything else that comes into the doors in the emergency on a Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening. And they were doing a, a terrific job of uh, stabilizing, working with the folks and uh, doing the best they can to uh, try and preserve the life that, that was lost. Wow. So, wow. um, you know, a tip of a hat to, to the emergency yeah. room as well. They were, again, stellar. Uh, it's, it's the only words I can use. Right. I, I certainly second that for sure. Susie Chant, thank you very much for coming on. It's great that you were on the scene and able to help, and I appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I thank you for uh, your your messages of support for our community. They are greatly yeah. appreciated. All right, welcome back. That news conference scheduled for this afternoon really shaping up as a doozy here with COVID cases surging in B.C. Could we see some increased restrictions and lockdown measures announced this afternoon now that is coming at one o'clock there's already lots of speculation about whether restaurants could be shut down for indoor dining that could be on the table this afternoon this news conference had originally been scheduled for 3 p.m it's been moved up to 1 p.m also premier john horgan now scheduled to be at this news conference he's been added to the lineup there all of this signals some major announcements coming this afternoon. We expect a big caseload to be announced this afternoon by Dr. Bonnie Henry and possibly expanded restrictions as the COVID case count increases in British Columbia. Now that is coming up at 1 p.m., 1 o'clock this afternoon. Make sure you keep it locked right here for live coverage of that important news conference coming up this afternoon. All right, could we see an expanded mask mandate in bc public schools isn't it interesting that the surrey school district has now expanded the mandatory mask rules in schools should other school districts do the same thing have a listen to this here now this is surrey school superintendent jordan tinney it's good news to get uh, a clear clear advice on masks it's also a sign that covid is still alive and well and out there and the fact that health believes we need to take additional measures measures specifically in surrey means that um there's still great cause for concern okay new mask rules in surrey schools what about other school districts should all school districts have these wider rules Let's discuss now with my guest, Doug Plair. He is the retired superintendent of schools in West Vancouver. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Doug, thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for doing this. Can you briefly explain to the listeners what these new rules are in, in Surrey and how this is going to work? Well, the new rule is that uh, grade 4 to 12, masks are mandatory even when they're sitting at their desks. So at all times when they're in school now. And in K-3, to they're encouraged. Right, and it's also mandatory for staff, staff from K-12 to and recommended. There's a recommendation for masks for kids as young as, as kindergarten. What do you think of those rules? Well, I think it should be expanded to every school district. And in fact, I think every child needs the protection. Because I think we have to assume this P1 variant could be anywhere. And... Every child deserves the same protection that all those students in uh, Surrey are getting now. We should have done this back in September. 
Yeah, and I was just about to say, you've been beating this drum for a long time. So when we saw some cases surge last fall, you think that's when they should have brought in the rule then? Oh, there's no question. If you look at where this province has gone from last spring to now, we've managed our way from first to last because we didn't use precautionary measures. The government leadership's been pathetic in this area. Hmm. Okay, so right now we've got, like, Surrey is a hot spot for covid what about some other school districts where there, there's less virus circulating? you think all the districts should have the same rules? I think every district should have the same rules, simply because there's virus everywhere in the province. If you look at the letter that Island Health sent out today to all yeah. parents of schools over here, I mean, if I'm a parent, I'd be keeping my child home. Yeah, and, what did, and what you, did it say in that letter? Well, it simply said you're going to have a lot more exposures, expect a lot more exposures for your child, and we encourage them to wear masks. Yeah. Well, we we should be saying you must wear masks. I, Mike, you probably saw the news on Brisbane today, seven cases, and they closed all the schools. Yeah, seven cases, and then they shut schools, yeah. Um, okay, what do you what do you hope to hear this afternoon? We have an uh, anticipating a major news conference here at one o'clock. COVID cases surging again. Uh, we expect to hear some restrictions coming up. What are you hoping to hear here? I I actually hope to hear a limited. First of all, I hope to hear a mask measure for all schools, uh, at the least. I hope to hear a limited lockdown in the province because the viruses. I mean, our numbers are atrocious and quite frightening with the P one variant. We're Brazil North now. I, I certainly hope they will consider just extending school closures through Easter. At least let's try and put a break on these numbers. And I believe what they've said in Surrey, now they at least admit that schools are vectors of community spread. And, and so, you know, let's lock down for a while. Let's tighten up restrictions and certainly don't put in the loosening of restrictions that were announced at the last conference. Okay, speaking of Doug Blair, he's the former superintendent of schools in West Vancouver, calling for tougher lockdown measures here to fight COVID. When you talk about a mask mandate in schools, especially for younger kids, there had been some thought that, well, trying to get younger kids to wear a mask is like herding cats. Can we really do this? Can we expect kids to mask up all day in school? That seemed to be a popular opinion at the start of this thing, but now we see one of the largest school districts in, in the province, if not the largest, saying, like, it's, it's time for these kids to mask up. Your thoughts? Well, they wear masks everywhere else when they go out, if they're in public places. If you look at any other country in the world that has managed this pandemic well, all kids wear masks, K-up. And I've talked to kindergarten teachers in the last week. They ask all their kids to wear masks. And the, the kids, you know, they really respect the teachers. And, and they'll do what their teacher asks. Right. Okay. Do you think that if they do go to a mandate like this, how do you think the public would respond? Like, what are you hearing from from parents? Do you think most parents want this? Because there is a division of opinion on it. But what do you think? You're, what do you think most parents feel on this? I believe there is a division, but I think the by far the majority want their child protected, and they would uh, applaud the government for expanding the mandate across the province. Right, including wearing your mask while you're sitting at your desk, right? Is that's a that's a key new rule they've got in Surrey. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. you're you, we're not enabling them to social distance. We haven't handled schools at all well since the beginning. 
And because we didn't enable them to social distance through different kind of uh, timetabling, et cetera, the kids are uh, cheek to jowl, and, and they need protection. Okay. Bonnie Henry has been reluctant to shut schools down, but you think that you think they should actually shut schools down, shut shut in class instruction down for for a while? I absolutely do. I, I oh. you know, they, there's all this talk that it will harm kids. It won't yeah. harm kids. And there are ways that we can put them on remote learning. And certainly if it's a, sh- a short lockdown, it will at least stop the schools being the vectors of spread. I mean, we're slipping up in so many places here. I have a fireman's son-in-law, can't even get a vaccine. He's a first responder. Schools, vaccines, they need to really create some new methodologies in our province. Okay, but when you say it doesn't hurt kids to shut schools down, I mean, I've talked to lots of parents and experts who talk about the the impacts on mental health of kids when they're out of school, if they're kept at home. I mean, there's a price to be paid for that as well. If it's over a really extended period, I would agree. But for a short period, even up to a month, I don't agree. And I I think I'm a pretty expert guy in schools. All right. Welcome back to the show. My guest is Doug Blair. He's the former school superintendent in West Van. Lots of calls. Let's go right to them. Dave and Poco. Hey, Dave. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. Go ahead. Good. I'm a a teacher in Coquitlam, and we're lucky enough to still be on spring break as we started uh, later than everybody else in the province. Oh, yeah. And uh, we have a son in grade four, and uh, if today was back to school for him, uh, my wife and I had the conversation yesterday that there's no way we would be sending him back now. There's been exposures all over. We know kids that have been told to isolate in our own community. And, uh, you know, frankly, I don't think it's safe in schools right now. And I would agree that a full mask mandate is uh, imperative, but... I don't feel like that's going to happen, and it should have happened, as Doug was saying, it should have happened back in September. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of parents might be thinking the same thing, but I wonder if you keep your kid home, what kind of education are they going to get online? Well, I think the teachers of the province did very well in the last uh, time we had a lockdown. I think that some parents obviously had challenges with uh, the way things were handled in some cases, but I think that teachers are professionals and that we are doing the best we can to ensure kids get the, the learning opportunities that they need when it's a remote or hybrid uh, option. And I think that it's really important that we do everything we can to protect our kids. Okay. And my son, as I said, is in grade four, and I know that his teacher would do the best they could, and I know it's not convenient for parents, but it's not convenient to get COVID. I know lots of people yeah. who've had COVID and several people that still are suffering the effects of COVID, and they got it back in May or June. And, you know, it's not okay to put our kids at risk. And I think that it's great that we've made a tiny step towards putting a mask mandate in schools in Surrey, but the whole province should have that. And my concern is that this is something that should have happened a long time ago, and it hasn't happened until now. Okay, thanks for that. It's Dave calling from Port Coquitlam. He's a school teacher there. Lots more calls. Let's go to Grant in White Rock. Hey, Grant. Hey, Mike. Yeah, first of all, Doug, you, you've got it right on. I think that uh, we're doing a disservice to our children and to our society in general by having schools open. We look at the numbers we have now. There's been irresponsibility with the government allowing this for whatever reasons. It's time to shake our head and say, listen, 
learning from school is one alternate. It's not the best, but it's certainly better than our children getting sick or dying. This is not rocket science. Do the right thing and have these children at home where they should be. Sleep and we'll see what happens. Let's go to Lynn on the line in Maple Ridge. Hi, Lynn. Oh, hi. Hi. Um, I am the opposing view. Um, okay. I, uh, everyone talks about following the science, but they don't. Uh, it's been shown that children don't get very sick from COVID at all. Um, that the CDC just announced that a three-foot distancing is, uh, is acceptable instead of six feet. And as far as it not damaging kids, um, it's not just the remote learning. It's the fact that they're not able to be enjoying sports. They're not interacting with their friends. I have a daughter who had to be treated for suicidal thoughts because of the lockdowns. I have another son who's completely fallen apart, lost all of his social friends. They say this isn't damaging to kids. It is extremely damaging to kids. And it, that we did the whole, you know, two weeks to slow the spread. Well, we just had two weeks off in spring break. So, you know, we, mm. we can't keep doing this to them. It, it, the, the damage is huge. I don't know who can say that this is not hurting the kids being locked up in their homes, not seeing their friends, not participating in sports, sitting in front of screens. It is totally damaging. And okay. my daughter is now in therapy. We had to pay thousands of dollars because the backup for the mental health services through the province is so backed up because of so many children in crisis because of this. I just can't believe what these people are saying. Okay, Lynn, thank you for the call. Doug Blair, what do you say to her? Well, I would say, first of all, all learning doesn't take place in schools. Secondly, what alternatives does she use in the summer and at Christmas? Because, you know, if you use, and I don't want to criticize anything as a parent, but Parents can find alternative activities for their kids to do, and they can be both learning activities. They can be, they should be outside. They should be exercising. They should be walking. We can teach them so much more that they don't get in school just by taking them on nature walks, et cetera. Okay. And that's what parents should be doing to avoid the kind of mental stress that those kids have. Well, okay. I think it would depend on the individual kid uh, on if something like that was effective, but I certainly feel for Lynn and the story she just shared there. Let me go to Helen on the line in Surrey. Hey, Helen. Hi. Hi. Oh, man, I really feel for Lynn. Thanks for sharing that. Yes. terrible. With all due respect to Doug's experience, um, there's a big difference between West Vancouver socioeconomic families and Surrey. I've got two Mm -hmm. grandkids in Surrey. Uh, Taking them out of school has a huge impact. I'm really glad. My my two grandkids have been wearing masks to school since September. They're in uh, grade two and grade four. I don't know why we didn't do that earlier, but there we are. I'm glad the teachers are jumping to the front line for vaccines. That's great. Um, But it is not a simple solution to just say, let them stay home. When you've got single parents, a lot of kids, uh, one-parent families, a lot of socioeconomic challenges, learning challenges, it's just not a simple solution. And the science, as Lynn said, isn't saying that the big transmission is happening in school. We just need to stop the people that are doing the transmission so we can all focus on the importance of keeping the kids safe. Okay, thank That's my two cents. Thank you, Helen. I'm going to be surprised here if there's any move to shut the schools down, but with the case numbers we're seeing, I mean... We'll just see what happens this afternoon. Let's go to Lee on the line in Vernon. We've just got a minute left. Go ahead, Lee. Yes, uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. 
I think that all kids should be uh, wearing a mask from K to 12. Um, one of the things that hit me with even with Keith Baldry today is we, we seem to have a blanket policy for the whole province. In the interior health here, we don't have an issue with COVID for big numbers growing, to my knowledge. And should we have to look at restaurants and other things been shut down when the problems are at the coast? That's my comment. Okay, thanks for the call. Squeeze in one more. Graydon in Kelowna, but you got to go quick, okay? Hey, guys, I'll keep it short. Thank you. Uh, I got two words for everyone. Self-discipline. Okay, Graydon, thank you for that call. Doug, thank you for coming on today. We'll see what happens this afternoon. Have a good day. Happy Easter. All right, welcome back to the show. We have followed very closely on the show the case of Alexei Navalny, the jailed Russian opposition leader. Navalny is the fearless and outspoken critic of Vladimir Putin's Russian regime. He survived an assassination attempt some time ago by poisoning. Uh, Many people will remember that. He bravely returned to Russia uh, some weeks ago and was immediately jailed there where he faces a lengthy prison sentence. New developments on this case emerging from Russia about his conditions in jail and concerns about his health. Let's discuss now with my guest, Bill Browder, uh, the campaigner for human rights and justice in Russia. And we've reached him in London in the United Kingdom, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Bill, thanks a lot for coming on. Great to be here. Could you just remind the listeners uh, who Alexei Navalny is and his significance, and, and including the, uh, the attempt on his life there with poisoning? What happened there? So Alexei Navalny is um, uh, a young, <clears throat> charismatic leader in Russia who is probably more popular than any other politician there. He's popular because he has challenged the corruption of the Putin regime by exposing corruption, by making movies and videos about them using social media. And his popularity has scared Vladimir Putin, who is trying to stay in power into perpetuity. And so Putin, about seven or eight months ago, um, uh, he instructed his secret police to poison Alexei with Novichok, which is a chemical nerve agent. And they expected that they would kill him. But Alexei survived the assassination attempt. He was in a coma in Germany for nearly a month. And then Putin tried to keep him from coming back to Russia by saying if he came back, he would be arrested. Right. And hoping that he'd stay away. But Alexei Navalny said he cares about the future of his country more than he cares about his own liberty or, or life. And he flew back to Russia, where he was then subsequently arrested. Now he's in jail, and they're trying to torture him. Yeah, no, I found it extraordinary when he returned to Russia. That was so dramatic. I just can't believe this guy's courage, knowing that this was his fate, that he would be immediately arrested and jailed like he, like he has been. And you can understand why I, Putin is afraid of him. I mean, this guy has got, what has he got, like 6 million followers on YouTube, and he's got like 2 million followers on Twitter. I mean, he's just huge on social media. Well, basically, Putin is afraid of him because he he represents something that Putin um, is everything but. I mean, he's an honest, yeah. Navalny is an honest man who wants to lead Russia into like a decent future. And Putin is a criminal who is a kleptocrat who just wants to steal everything. And and um, and Putin can't stand that. And, and, and 
you know, Alexei Navalny is is so as you say so brave yeah. that he that he's ready to go back and risk his life for his country, and and that's an extremely compelling message for the average Russian person who is saying, "Who do I want? Someone who's stealing from me, or someone who's ready to risk his life for me?" And and Alexei Navalny is that guy, and Putin is the really in a certain way, the hostage in this situation. Yeah, no, that's what I think really stood out to me was the guy's courage in going back to Russia, knowing he was going to be jailed. Like, to me, that's kind of like Nelson Mandela level uh, courage. Um, let no, me ask you a no question. Yeah, for sure. Like, like, let me ask you about his uh, his situation in prison now. So we're hearing a lot of disturbing reports about his health in jail. That Does he have an, an infection in his leg or something? Or he been asking for painkillers? Yeah, so, so Alexei Navalny has uh, they they've been shuttling him around in in cattle cars and police vans and all sorts of stuff and and it's really really unpleasant the way they they move around prisoners and in doing so um, that he he had developed a, a back problem that many men develop in middle age but he developed it a pinched nerve in his lower back which is extremely painful and um, and they've refused him all medical treatment and. Now, the, the, the back pain is not going to kill him, but this is just the beginning of how they go about torturing political prisoners. And I've seen this with my own eyes, with what happened to my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, who went into jail, um, a young man at, at the age of 35, and, and within 358 days, they had destroyed his health and destroyed his life and killed him. And, and this is the beginning of the process that they're inflicting on Alexei Navalny. It's going to be a slow-motion torture and a slow motion assassination unless so we can do something to put pressure on putin to stop okay he had been seeking painkillers or something or he had i think he had warned people that they were threatening to throw him in sol solitary confinement is that the situation so so they, they basically they, they have these unbelievably un, un these rules that are and nobody is able to fulfill and and the idea would then be to throw him in solitary confinement where it just gets even worse and worse. And, and in the meantime, they're waking him up every hour, every night, for at, at every hour, so he can't sleep. Um, they're not giving him any painkillers for his, his uh, excruciating pain in his uh, lower back, which is, makes it impossible for him to walk. And, um, I mean, it's, it's really pretty horrific. And, and uh, as I said, th th they're just going to do this and what they're hoping to do is just, you know, normalize it so that, you know, it gets, it gets worse and worse and worse. And they, they just destroy this man in slow motion. That's yeah. how they operate over there. Yeah, that's incredible. Speaking of Bill Browder, he's a campaigner for human rights and justice, speaking to us live on the line in, in London, in the United Kingdom. Um, you posted on, on Twitter uh, that it was strange that there were two, two Russian doctors who had are were they Russian doctors who died mysteriously who had helped help save uh, save Alexei Navalny's life? Yeah, so he so he he um he was poisoned. He was in Siberia in a town called Tomsk, and he was due to fly back to Moscow, and the plane took off, and then he collapsed on the airplane, and quick thinking pilots then landed the plane in another Siberian town called Omsk. And when he landed in Omsk, um, the paramedics met him at the plane. They injected him with some antidote. Yeah. And then they took him to the Omsk hospital where, the, um, where they treated him and stabilized him enough so that 48 hours later he could be medevaced to Germany. The two doctors, in the one doctor um, uh, the, uh, 
in charge of the emergency department and his deputy um, have both died within a year of treating Alexei Navalny. Yeah. And um, they could just be random coincidence or it could be that that they knew too much about what had happened and the, uh, the government doesn't want that information to go out, get out. Wow. Wow. It's really difficult to know know the truth in these situations, but that, that is very strange and unusual kind of coincidence, if that's what it is. Um, what do you think about the, the global response to the jailing of Alexei Navalny and, you know, including Canada's response? I mean, do you think there should be a tougher response from Canada and other countries around the world? Like you mentioned Sergei Magnitsky, who is your lawyer, who, who also was also uh, died and people may be familiar with the uh, Magnitsky sanctions that can be imposed by uh, governments around the world against regimes like this um, named after your lawyer what do you think about Canada's response well Canada was very late in responding which was a bit annoying for for me and others Um, it took them several months to do the same thing that the United States and Europe had done much earlier but nobody so far has done what needs to be done. And what needs to be done is Alexei Navalny, before he got on that airplane from Berlin back to Moscow, knowing that he'd be arrested, he made a list of 35 people who he refers to as Putin's cashiers, the, guy, the guys who look after the money for Vladimir Putin. He made a list, and that list is available. And those are the people that he understood, and I agree with him, if they were to be sanctioned, that would that that would change the situation because those are the people looking after Putin's money, and so what needs to happen with Canada, and what needs to happen with the rest of the world, the United States and the UK and the EU, is to go after those thirty-five people, and 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 hopefully it doesn't take Alexei Navalny dying in custody before we do that. Okay, we continue to follow it with great interest, and as always, I'm grateful for your time today, Bill. Thank you for coming on. Thank you.